This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success, the podcast designed to inspire you and give you actionable information to enhance, up-level, reimagine, and reinvent your life and your livelihood. No matter where you started, where you are now, or where you've been, you too can lead an authentic, first-class life. Each week, new stories of turning points and transformation will help you define what success means to you so you can live your best life on your terms. Now here's your host, first-class life mentor and certified Profiting From Your Passions coach, Kate Bessler. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and this week my guest is Robin Daly. Robin's work with color and design began when she was in high school, selling paints, wallpapers, and blinds at her family's paint and decorating stores. Can you imagine trusting a 15-year-old with your decorating choices? That was Robin. Styles were a little different then. One-inch metal mini blinds and goose-themed wallpapers were all the rage. Over the years, Robin's been to well over 5,000 homes, helping people create their perfect solutions. Besides the countless miles logged, it all adds up to a level of experience that can't be beat. Robin's design perspective is to create a painless process for her clients while landing on a look that is just right for the space. Besides offering personalized interior design services through her business, Robin Daily Color and Design, Robin's passion is to share what she's learned. She's written about color and decor for newspapers, magazines, and blogs, both locally and nationally, including a weekly column in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer newspaper and a monthly design column for the regional lifestyle magazine, 425 Magazine. Robin has appeared on radio and television, and she loves to teach classes to fellow designers and homeowners. Have you ever wondered who names all those paint colors? A highlight of Robin's career has been her extensive involvement in helping to create a national paint brand called C2 Paint. She was part of the team that developed C2 Paint's unique color palette and product, working from the ground up. And yes, naming colors may have involved just a little bit of red wine for inspiration. Robin brings her excitement of working with people and finding their ideal solutions to their home and uniting that with her deep industry insider's knowledge. Welcome, Robin. Well, hi. Thanks for having me on. You started your design career at the age of 15. Was it something that really called you at the time, or was it something you kind of had to do as part of the family business? Well, let me just say that trips to the Nordstrom teen department called me. And so the way to afford to do that was to get a job. And working in my family's uh, paint and decor business was certainly a lot more fun than slinging hamburgers for that time period. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. Well, tell me about helping someone create their environment. What are some of the decisions that have to be made, whether you want mini blinds or goose (laughs) wallpaper? Goose wallpaper. (laughs) Um, I think it's a lot more than people think about. Well, a lot of times people call you, they find you because they have a problem that needs to be solved. And in, in the interior design world, I'm known for color. So uh, people will come to me saying, Robin, I need a new paint color. I hate how my house looks. I'm unhappy. It's time to refresh, you know, all kinds of different reasons. So 
they come to you with what they they see as a problem. It's their house isn't working for them anymore. And a lot of times it's not that the paint color is wrong. That may be part of it, but the whole setup in the home is no longer serving them and they need it to change so that the house is working for them rather than than them working around the way the house is set up. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but a lot of it, um, the kitchen, you, you might have um, a, a cupboards that don't work anymore because you don't cook anymore or things like that, that your life changes and the walls are ugly because you painted them in the early 2000s in the coffee house colors and now they're depressing. But really what's depressing is everything about it, but I can get my brain around the paint color and I don't even realize these other things are bugging me until we start talking about them. Right. Yes. I've heard that, you know, once you change one thing, then almost everything else has to change too. And I've experienced right. that in my life. Right. It's like when you, have you ever like wanted to go clothing shopping and you just, you like you have money burning in your pocket and you can't find anything you like. It's always when, for me, it's always when I'm going through a life change that no longer, no clothes in my closet fit how I feel anymore. So I think the same can happen in your home. You go through a life change. Uh, your kids have gone off to college or, or maybe your family's expanding, like all kinds of things can happen in our lives. And that thing doesn't it anymore and it's time to change so so the same can be said for your wardrobe or your home and you help make that painless for the client I can see we're having to make a lot of choices could be overwhelming presumably you present yeah. them with just a few curated options to take away some of that analysis paralysis well oftentimes what we do is we get the grand tour of the house even if you're only working in the living room and dining room, seeing how everything is connected informs me about how you live. So, so that way, if we're choosing a paint color for the living room today, it, it doesn't necessarily create that ripple effect. Or if it does, maybe what we do is we we choose the living room color, but we're also going to make sure that we've got a plan for the rest of the house so that by the time you get through the living room and the dining room and the kitchen and the office and the entry and you get back to the living room, it all makes sense rather than you constantly chasing your tail and never feeling like you have a finished project. Hmm. So, so having a plan in place that you can execute on your own pace if you want to, is really helpful. So, so going to somebody's home, we get that we get the grand tour and we see like what's going on. Uh, where do kids put their backpacks when they walk in the door? Where do you put your bag? Where do you put your keys? Where do you put your mail? Like, there's lots of functional things that happen besides the pretty paint color. And then we get to talk about the pretty, also. But we we get to look at how we live in the house with a really thoughtful perspective. And when you, when you bring a designer in, 
they're a little bit like Switzerland. They're, they're not emotionally connected to, well, I've always had that plant in that corner. So I never even thought about moving that plant kind of idea. So they, they can look at how, how you live and because of their experience, they can give you guidance to make it even e easier to live. Mm -hmm. uh, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to ask you a bit more about uh, design in a few minutes, but going back to sort of pain and things that no longer fit, um, you yeah. recently had to shut down the family business that you grew up with after, what was it, 80 yes. years? An 80-year-old business. Yes. Yeah. Tell me and, about that. Well, in terms of um, things to do that are fun, I wouldn't put that on the list. But it, it was a really cool business. There were two retail stores and a manufacturing arm here in the greater Seattle Pacific Northwest area. So our family business had two paint and decorating stores. And we also made stains and wood finishes for things like um, boats and houses and floors. And everything was made in our Seattle location. So, so our business had two faces to the world. One was the retail stores where we helped homeowners and we helped painting contractors. And then we had the whole manufacturing arm. And then uh, with our manufacturing business, we had clients scattered throughout the Pacific Northwest. We had probably, I want to say about 200 dealers that sold our products. And a lot of people didn't know that we had either one side of the business or the other. So if you were a paint store customer, you may not have necessarily known that we had this whole distribution network for our stains and wood finishes. And everything was made in Seattle by hand. and um, we had this little thing happen called the recession. <laughs> and when you have products that are distributed around, in, in, in the olden days, each of our clients might have six or eight cans of product on their shelf, right? Because they're selling it and, you know, things are going along. Then the recession happens. All those 200 retailers all of a sudden cut down their inventory. So they'd have what we would call one to show, one to go. So now you've got two or three products where before you had six, seven, or eight products. And you spread that out over the whole entire distribution network. And the manufacturing piece of the business was chopped in half. Yet our overhead stayed the same. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, our retail business also suffered, as did how, how many mom-and-pop businesses across the country, right? So, so we suffered a one-two sucker punch, whereas many uh, stores that were similar to us didn't have the manufacturing arm, or many manufacturers didn't have the retail arm. Right. And we were able to survive, but we went into a lot of debt to make that happen. And... It, it just got to the point where even though we had turned around the retail side of the business, when we came out of it, 
the, cli the retail climate had changed. So before 2008, there were m many fewer paint stores that were owned nationally. So uh, for example, there's a company called Sherwin-Williams. They're the largest paint maker in the world. And you might have seen their trucks around. They have a globe with a bucket of paint pouring on it that says, we cover the earth, which is really yes, funny because my which kids seems really paint, insensitive like, right now. Like, covering the earth with paint. What a bad idea. How environmentally know, unfriendly. I, <laughs> exactly. I look at it as like this like historical logo and my children are like, how can they say that? But regardless, they've multiplied like mushrooms around the country they, they've just they've taken more and more of the business that used to go to small independent paint stores for example and you know there's the home depots and the Lowe's and the boxes and so so anyway that whole world shifted after the recession and then the damage that we incurred with the manufacturing side so we spun off the manufacturing we sold out a few years ago we we we, while we were able to turn the business around, it wasn't enough to make up for the losses we incurred before mm -hmm. and during and after. Well, not before the recession, but during and after the recession. So we made the extremely painful decision to close. And that was six months ago this week. Oh, my goodness. Well, Eight years. So this your this business must have been started by your grandparents. My grandfather started it, and he was a designer before designers were a thing. And he was an entrepreneur. He came up from Texas during the Depression. And when you look at the map of the continental U.S., and you look at Texas, and you look at Seattle, that's a about as far away from Texas as you can get and still be in the lower 48. Mm -hmm. And, you know, family lore has it that he has four ex-wives down there. And, you know, so, so he was an interesting <laughs> character. And, and uh, I, have, I have historical pictures of parade floats that he did in Pasadena. I have pictures, hand-tinted black and white pictures of um, department stores that he decorated. But back then, not only would he decorate it, he'd be the contractor. So he'd come up with the ideas and then he'd execute it. And so he brought those skills up to Seattle. And one of the things that he was doing was bleaching the woodwork at the, um, what was the Olympic Hotel. Oh. And other contractors wanted his bleaching recipe because that was a very stylish look for the times, was the mid-1930s, this whole bleached oak woodwork look. And that's how he started the manufacturing piece. And so the manufacturing piece was an early part of our DNA, as it were, and, and the design. So it's kind of cool in my sort of... Mm, our uh, rebirth that I am doing design work because it's uh, while that's what I, I went to, I went to design school for it. I didn't use those skills as fully as I'm using them now. So, um, so I'm a third generation designer <laughs> at mm -hmm. the same time. 
Well, that must have made the decision to close the business that much more excruciating. Oh, I could cry for you right now if you want me to. <laughs> it's, um, so somebody reminded me that caterpillars, they build the chrysalis around them, and then they dissolve into liquid mush before they emerge into a butterfly. And I will say that these last six or seven years, I've been liquefied, and I feel like I'm finally able to start working my way out. And I better be the best-looking butterfly ever, let me tell you. So, so that's what I'm looking forward to, is, um, is seeing what when you have a family business that's 80 years old and you're running it, regardless of the outer pressures that, that you experience, you're also carrying the history of these individuals that came before you and the weight of those individuals that came before you. So it was extremely painful to let go of this 80-year-old business and it's very freeing. Who am I without that? Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting thing to explore. Who, who am I if I don't have this automatic mm, physical storefront to be identified with? When you were in what I call the space between, after you know, you've let go of something that was, but you're not quite sure what's going to be next, did you think about going in a different direction altogether? Or were you just sort of like, this is my thing, and I'm going to figure it out? Oh, no, 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 I certainly, so, so I certainly looked at other things that when you are a small business owner, you get to wear a number of hats. And in, in that space of being a small business owner, I was able to do things on a national stage that many small business owners don't have the opportunity to. I was able to help create a, a, a national brand that, uh, that the C2 paint that you, you mentioned in my introductory, introductory bio. Yeah, which we'll talk about a little later how many small businesses get to, to, to create something on a national stage from an idea? Mm-hmm. Not, not very many owners get to do that. And I got to be part of the team of other very independent, what I call accent color personalities in, you know, referring to That's paint an colors, you know, term. <laughs> And, and we were able to create something that these national companies were telling us to our face, you're going to fail, you're crazy, what are you doing? And we were able to partner with the world's second largest paint maker after creating this thing. So, so getting back to your question about do you just keep doing what you know or do you look at doing other things? I, I certainly took a look at what are my, what are the skills? So this, uh, that was all in reference to this. Some of the skills that I was able to build during my time as a small business owner, um, a lot of writing, 
um, a lot of marketing, brand building, all of those things uh, with a designer's eye and uh, creating a color palette, which is really hard work. It sounds like it should be fun, but it's really, um, it's really challenging. So uh, negotiating uh, with raw material suppliers on pricing and sourcing and I mean, just all kinds of different things and learning how to deal with people that are emotional because in in my old business it was decorating and home improvement so people get very emotionally attached to their home and mm -hmm. if something goes wrong they're upset and so learning how to deal with multiple personalities all the time so all these kind of different things right I'm looking at all what are my skills but what do I like like I might be really good at helping helping a client come off the ceiling or I might be really good at vendor negotiations and buying uh, raw materials at a lower price and all of these kinds of things. But what, what, what is the thing that really gives me juice? And when you go through an Armageddon experience, can I allow myself to say to the world what I really want to do? Because that's really scary. It's really scary to admit what you want and um, say it out loud because when you have a family business, you maybe you get a lot of what you want and it, it, it um, but it, is it really what you want? So, so th those were things that I was looking at and how do you afford to do what you want mm -hmm. when you're going through, um, a horrible, horrible financial, awful experience. So, so yes, I I, uh, I I looked at all kinds of things, and I said in a little teeny tiny voice to myself, "I want to do my own business. I want to do my own design work. I want to I want to help people," um, which I didn't get to do for the last. 15 or 20 years in the same way because I was busy running a business, building a brand, juggling, raising children, um, being, you know, having a marriage. Marriage is great, by the way, so that's, that's not a problem. But where, where was I in all of that? And it's been a very busy time these last six months. And, and how, do you, how do you say what you want and be sad? Too. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, kudos to you for having the courage to um, to claim it. Well, it's 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 fun to find the fun again, if that makes sense. And I think when you when you're going through a really horrible experience, you know there's an end hopefully, right? You know that at some point things are get, going to get better. They're going to change. They're going to change. So how do you keep running on that treadmill or, or running that race when you know you're going to hit a finish line, but you don't know where the finish line is? Mm -hmm. It's, it's very challenging. And um, that, that was probably 
an eight-year process for us as a family. So, so getting to the point where I decided we are closing. This is it. it it's um, it's you, you're jumping off the precipice, and once you do, right, you can't turn around and say, oh, change my mind, wait, wait, no, 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 really, I, was, I just wanted to test it, I just wanted to see a little bit, what's it like, you, you don't get to do that piece, right, you just get to do it, but there are no wrong choices in the world, there are just choices, and making that choice, I knew I was triggering a whole bunch of unpleasantness, but I was also living in a world that was unpleasant. So, so it was going to get me out of unpleasantness ultimately. And um, so here I am. What, what did I do? I, I looked at all kinds of things. I looked at job boards. I started networking, started talking to people. And I realized I was overqualified and underqualified. So I could, with my experience, I could manage a business for somebody else, and that just made me sick to my stomach. I didn't want to do it. I could start doing design work, working, um, getting my feet wet, selling furniture, for example, and I could be paid $18 an hour. So, so in between those two, I don't want to be paid $18 an hour. I want, you know, I want to be paid my, what I perceive as my worth and my value. And I don't know if I have the stamina or the wherewithal or frankly, the interest to care about somebody else's business problems right now. And I did spend four and a half months consulting for a boutique paint store. I'm probably still going to be doing some business or some work for them, but it was a great confirmation for me. One, it provided me a very soft landing after a very difficult time. It confirmed that the skills and the talents that I do bring to the market are desirable by someone else. And three, I don't want to work for anybody else. Huh. Well, that's kind of a problem if you're brought in to help them. So... <laughs> So, so then about mm, two weeks ago, uh, I decided, no, I'm doing design full time and it's fun and I get to, to help people and I, I get to do writing and I get to do blogging and I get to do marketing and I get to solve people's problems. That's awesome. You created a business yeah. that is yeah. unique to your uh, desires. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, the, the, way, the way in to help people is to talk through the language of color. But that can show up in a whole bunch of different ways. So you mentioned that you went to design school. What is the difference between mm-hmm. an interior decorator and an interior designer, if there is one? That's, an, a, that's a, a question that is really up for debate. And an interior designer typically has gone through formalized training 
Uh, in some states, they are required to be licensed by a, an organization, a trade organization, uh, like a, it, how CPAs have to be or attorneys. And in some states, they are not. Some uh, designers uh, focus on the commercial world. So somebody's got to plan all those Amazon offices for example, or my, my old favorite Nordstrom, right? Like when you go to a shopping experience, a designer is working on helping to create that experience. And there are a lot of technical things you have to know. It's not all about picking a pretty fabric, but it has to do a lot with safety and building codes and fire safety and people flow and all of those kinds of things that, you know, we don't really think about when we're thinking about mini blinds or, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. A decorator traditionally, um, in a sense, they're a little bit maligned. They're not treated as respected, but they, uh, deal more with surface finishes, furnishings, and things like that. And um, they don't have to have had formalized training. That being said, many of the most successful designers I know don't have formalized training. They are creative people. Mm-hmm. That... One woman I know uh, studied theater arts and theater design in college, but all of those same those same uh, design elements, scale, you know, um, proportion, contrast, all of those kinds of the tools that we all use as designers, they come into play whether you're an artist or a theater designer or an interior decorator, or an interior designer. So it, it's, not, it's not clear to everybody. And um, I think that there is room for both decorators and for uh, designers. Many, many interior designers go on to become interior architects. You know, it, that focus more on like the commercial side or the super high-end residential side but that's a, a much you know that's a small percentage of of, of the world hmm. but a lot of training so you focus mostly on residential is that right that's correct and that's I mean I've been occupying that space since I was 15 and a half so um, that it, it that's not uh, my first job when I was done with design school was for Nordstrom and I did space planning for the corporate offices. And even back in the day, it was a lot of computer aided design and a lot of, you know, figuring out where outlets were and where office walls were being moved and office. And it was so boring. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was so boring for me. And so that just isn't where my head or, or my heart are. I'm, I'm much more passionate about uh, people in their homes 
and helping them to maybe put language to what they don't even know they want. What are some of the trends you're seeing in home design right now? I've heard that granite is out. (laughs) So here's what happens. Granite used to be like the luxury countertop in, in, in kitchens, right? Like you would go to a street of dreams home and Ooh, they had miles of granite counter and you just were like, I love it. And then inexpensive granite would start being shipped in and then builders would start using it to entice you to love your McMansion. And then it would water down to little homes and people would be putting granite in and all of a sudden this item that was not attainable it was an aspirational thing for the masses it was not attainable for everybody became much more affordable and attainable so all of a sudden it becomes out because now everyone can have it Mm -hmm. and it's it's like a design designer handbag right and um if you see coach handbags everywhere you could go to the coach outlet store to get one why do you want one anymore if everyone has it? So, so a lot of times design, it's not, it's not, it's playing on desire, right? There's an aspirational element to it sometimes, not every time. I, I'm helping a, a great couple right now. You know, they've got their, their camper parked in their driveway. They don't care, right? But they, they, they told me what we really want. We want a grown-up living room. Like our daughter's off at college. I have this two mismatching sofas. You know, we got one when we were young and we couldn't afford, you know, just I just need a grown-up living room. So, so that's a lot of us, right? We, we're not necessarily – and then we go, ooh, granite. That's so sexy. And now we can say yes. And there's also this and there's this. So you don't, you don't have to do that. But, but that's how those things work. And quartz, countertops is another one, right? Quartz is a, a mineral mined out of the earth mixed with some resins. And then they form it into slabs so that it's like granite it's similar to granite, but it's quartz. And you get these fashionable colors and you can get swirly patterns. And, and so now that's doing the same thing that happened with granite where it started out being very expensive and now it's a mid-market product. Right, that is the thing that I've heard is the preferred replacement now for your granite is the quartz. Right, right. And the cool thing about quartz is you don't have to, you have much less maintenance. You just wipe it with a sponge. Done. No sealing. You don't have to seal it. You don't have to, you know, worry about it. So, so that then becomes a lifestyle choice. Like, oh, really? No grout lines to clean? I just wipe it down. I never have to, like, put some chemicals on it. I'm in. Right. Yeah. So how have shows like the ones on HGTV and their magazine, how has that impacted Mm. your business? 
clients are more educated. There's there's HGTV and there's Pinterest, which is like crap. Right. Pinterest. I don't know if you've been on Pinterest. Um, I love that thing until I hate it, right? Because, you know, you can start staring at it until your eyes just become red. But there's a plethora of information right now, which is good and bad. Right now, what happens is we become overwhelmed with too much information. And a lot of people talk about HGTV in a disparaging way, like, you know what they don't, they do a bad job because they don't really talk about the cost. It doesn't really cost $2,000 to redo the whole kitchen and you can't do it in three days. Hmm. So, so there's some of that messaging still happens, I think, where people think it's less expensive than it really is or that it happens faster than it really does. But it is completely influencing the taste of consumers. So um, in the, you know, I would roll my eyes when people would go, what? Joanna has wallpaper and I can get shiplap wallpaper? Right. <laughs> you can. But I don't need, I mean, we know her on a first name basis don't wait. And um, yes, everyone knows who you're talking about, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so how, how has HGTV influenced us? It's made us aware of the pretty. So, it, you know, um, Joanna and, and Chip, they have a specific design aesthetic, but it's very approachable, very, very livable or the two foxy twins, right? They, I, what are their names? The Property Brothers? Property Brothers, yeah. Um, I don't know. They're uh, my, Drew and, my daughter uh, and I, somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> my daughter and I are always fighting over, oh, no, I date him. Mm, no, I date him. Okay, fine. You can have him. I'll take him. But um, <laughs> Well, one of them know, just got married, so is unavailable. I, well, <laughs> I, I'm coming up on 25 years. I don't think I'm a risk at all. All right. But... Um, they're, um, oh, and not all interior designers, by the way, are beautiful. Just FYI, they're not all TV perfect. So, so sometimes I think one of the problems is we get intimidated that you have to be a certain kind of personality to, to be a designer. Like you have to have a sense of perfection about you. The other thing that the HGTV I think has brought in, like when I started uh, working at Nordstrom um, in the space planning department, I wore hose, I wore, you know, wool skirts and flats and silk shirts. And, you know, it was a much more formalized time. Um, and I would go to the design center after, after I left Nordstrom and I was starting the design department at Daly's. I would, you know, I'd go down to the design center and I'd go call on clients and, you know, I'd have a certain kind of clothing style I would wear. It's very casual now. And we're seeing designers on TV wearing jeans, wearing, you know, Converse sneakers 
and also getting their hands dirty. So I do think it is educating people that interior design is not necessarily a highfalutin, snobby, unapproachable, intimidating profession, but that it's, um, there's a lot of schlepping, quite frankly. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot of heavy samples that you're, you're taking around and, and you're running to a fabricator where it's really gritty or you're going on site where there's sawdust and mud and grit and grime. So, you know, wearing cute little high heels is really not a good idea. Right. Well, tell me about the C2 paint. How did you get involved? What was that like? Mm-hmm. And how many of you were drinking wine while naming those colors? <laughs> so C2 paint started about 20 years ago as an idea by a number of disgruntled independent paint store owners mm-hmm. because we were seeing the changing marketplace. There was massive industry consolidation. There used to be hundreds of independent paint factories around the country. And then there were regional paint makers. And then there were national paint brands. And the little ones got gobbled up by the medium ones. And the medium ones got gobbled up by the big ones. So as paint retailers, we had fewer and fewer choices of brands to offer our client base and our brands that we were selling that got gobbled up lost their soul so the quality changed the pricing changed the availability changed and we were losing control and we decided the only way to take control of our destiny was to make our own brand of paint since that was the biggest that we sold through the stores, why were we giving up control of our largest chunk of business to some corporation who didn't care about us? Mm. So basically, it was kind of like Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland getting together and saying, we could put on our own show. There was about 20 uh, independent paint and design store owners from around the U.S. and Canada who got together and said, we could make our own brand of paint. And we, um, we, we worked with, uh, we partnered, one of our partners was the former technical director of a brand called Pratt & Lambert, which had got gobbled up by Sherwin-Williams. And he had developed a high-end, high-quality paint for them as their technical director. So he was the brains behind the paint performance. And those of us that were in the trenches, as it were, working with clients day in and day out, we created our own color palette because paint companies, um, every decade or so, come out with a new palette, but they never ask the people using it what the color should be. And so we thought that the colors that most paint companies offered were pretty bad and we could do better. So we did. And that involved coming together from all over the U S and Canada. And we would meet typically in Chicago and we would 
be bringing color inspiration with us. We would be bringing colors of palettes that did work, and we laid them out on a huge board in a conference room that we took over, and we spent days and days winnowing down the palette. And then we would take the color palette of all these different people's ideas, and we'd make our own recipes, and we wouldn't just take that color and copy it, but we would just use that color as the inspiration point. You know, if you need a soft blue color, that's the good placeholder, but we're going to make our own soft blue. And we went to the Netherlands to find a pigment system. So, so the stuff you squirt in paint to make the colors, there's different companies that make those pigments. And some are inexpensive and some are extremely expensive. And so because we were independent and no one was going to tell us what to do, we picked one of the highest quality pigment systems in the world. Nobody else in North America is even using it, but it made our colors particularly luminous because the smaller pigment would be dispersed through our paint in a, a, a more, uh, a finer dispersion kind of a way. So, so we would tell somebody like, if you look around the room that you're in right now, imagine filling your room with beach balls. You know, there's kind of a little bit of space around each beach ball. It could still feel pretty dense and pretty thick. But now imagine filling the same room with BBs. You couldn't walk through it, right? It's much denser. It's those BBs take up more, you know, there's a smaller particle. So the pigments that we used have a smaller particle. So they disperse through the paint differently, which leaves it, the color looking different on your wall or on the outside of your house. I don't know if that makes sense or not. So, so we used our own paint recipes. We didn't go to an existing paint company and say, hey, could you private label this for us? We like that paint. We said, no, hey, we want, this is our paint recipe. We need this to be made. We're going to use these quality ingredients. And, oh, these are, these are, this is our color palette. Yeah, nobody else has it. And um, the big national companies um, tried to put us out of business, which was not fun, but an incredible compliment. And then we did end up partnering like I mentioned earlier, with a company called PPG, who's the world's second largest paint maker. They, they fight for dominance. Sometimes it's Sherwin-Williams, sometimes it's PPG. And um, they, they partnered with C2. C2 is a cooperatively owned paint company. So that's also something unusual. It's owned by the people who founded it and invested in it. Uh, PPG became one of the co-op partners because they saw that they couldn't easily replicate what we had spent 15 years doing. And that helped C2 post-recession. What does C2 mean? Why did you name it that? So, so we jokingly would say we named it C2 to make it easy to spell. <laughs> but there were there were other names that it was going to be. Uh, it in the early days it represented collections of color, uh, 
or it represented color and chemistry because it, not only was it a pretty paint, but it had brains in it too. You know, the, the science in the can was, mm. um, was something, but it also wasn't trademarked. So, <laughs> so at the end of the day, that was a name that we could trademark. Ah, I see. Well, I clicked through on some of the names to see what you were talking about, about the whole wine drinking thing. Some of them were normal, like daffodil. Then I found heirloom tomato, a bit unusual, but still something natural that evokes a certain idea of what the color might be. And the next one I came across was Charlie Horse. Mm -hmm. What's the strangest name of a color that's in this palette? Well, we were going to name one Bob's Shorts, but that didn't make the cut because Bob is one of our <laughs> trusted, trusted partners. Um, in the last round of updates for C2, there were about 40 colors that we were retiring and we were replacing with 40 new ones. And there were 4,000 names that were in rotation for these 40 colors. So um, some names, like I, I got one named Salish Sea, because to me that is site specific to the Pacific Northwest. And I thought that was really neat. Um, we have a color called Major Tom, which was a David Bowie song. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of them that are um, blues-related because after working in the conference room in Chicago all day, we'd go out to the blues club at night. So those were in honor of, um, of those, those blues clubs that we would go listening to. The hardest one in this last update is if you look on the palette, there's a color that's black. And what's really cool, as a side note, that black has no black pigment in it. None of the colors in the C2 palette have black pigment, which is probably the most popular paint pigment in the paint world because mm. black provides um, hide. Like, you, you know, a lot of those one-coat paints that you see mm. marketed, um, they're really dirty and there's not a pure white in them, for example, because one coat white, pure whites don't hide. We, we, we were able to formulate the, every, the entire C2 palette, even the deepest reds to cover in two coats because of the fine grind of the pigment. And none of the colors have that black pigment in them. Even that black doesn't have black. It takes an artist's perspective of the color palette and it uses color complements to create a black so that we couldn't name the color we couldn't come up with a name you know we had like this is black right what do you name black well you know deep space nine no the death star no and so i was really proud of this because this was my name but it was aperture and oh. aperture you have to know what a camera is to know what an aperture is, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was kind of cool in this digital world to have this reference to an aperture. And 
for most of the C2 colors, you're, you, there's like a moody blue in there, but you're not going to find pink passion and, oh, there is yellow submarine, but you're not going to find color names that reference the color itself in most cases. Mm-hmm. Because that's sort of serving it to you on a plate and we want it to be a little more evocative. Right. So being a girl from the 80s, I, I was able to sneak in um, a color called Temptation, which is sort of a hot pink. And that was a reference to a, an 80s band called New Order. So, you know, it, a lot of them came from ourselves. Well, we're almost out of time. So I have to ask you, what is one book or a resource that changed your life that you would recommend to people? I have thought about this question before because I've heard it asked on the Tim Ferriss uh, podcast. And I've always thought if that question was asked to me, what would I answer? And there's, I have two answers for you. One was a book I was given when I was a very young girl and it was published in the 1940s and it's called Your Manners Are Showing. And it was given to me by a neighbor when I turned 13 years old and it was all about etiquette. And it was done, you know, each page was like a little rhymy poem, but it talked about, you know, how to behave and how to, how to act in public and things like that. But that, so that changed my life at an influential time for how to act in public from what, from, from my most recent experience, I didn't, I didn't turn to books. I, I didn't have it in me to focus long enough to read a book going through the massive stress that we went through, but I did turn to podcasts and I could listen to information being delivered to me. Uh, while I was driving and in between things. And I found that extremely grounding. And um, the, the Tim Ferriss one, uh, I really like. The uh, WTF podcast by Mark Marin is uh, really fun. And then there's this series of podcasts by this woman named Shalene Johnson. And she's very well known in the fitness industry and she's a bit on the perky side but very much business oriented and uh, I found her little bites of 20-minute podcasts sometimes to be just the shot in the arm I needed to keep going and then I did a deep dive into a bunch of interior design business podcasts so those I have found very helpful for me as I've gotten back into design full-time to to take a deep dive and get caught up fast in my profession. Mm -hmm. So Robin, how do you personally define success for yourself? What is your definition of an authentic first-class life? Oh, that's a sneaky one. Um, Not dragging my ass out of bed in the morning, but actually getting up and looking forward to the day. Mm-hmm. That's pretty darn successful. Yep, I would have to agree. If people want to find out more about you and your work, how can they do that? 
The easiest place to find me is through my website, which is Robin Daily Color, R-O-B-I-N-D-A-L-Y Color.com. And I am all over Facebook. Awesome. So what's next for Robin Daly? Well, this afternoon, I have an appointment to talk about doing writing for a, the boutique paint company that I had mentioned earlier. And then I've got some client calls to make. What's not to love about that? What is not to love? Robin Daly, designer and owner of Robin Daly Color and Design. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. Do you feel like you're drowning in administrivia? Do you have a podcast you would like transcribed to repurpose as a blog or even a best-selling book? Rhonda's Virtual Office is the answer to the freedom you crave so you can get busy doing what you love. Let Rhonda's Virtual Office give you the relief you need. Visit rondasvirtualoffice.com and get some peace of mind today. Rhonda's Virtual Office is the go-to transcription service for EWN Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. Back now with your host, Kate Fessler. That's a tough place to be and an even tougher decision to make to close down a company started by your grandfather that's been in the family for 80 years. Bouncing back from that, claiming your own space in the same industry couldn't have been easy. But as you heard, this is what Robin loves to do. She's really good at it and she was able to claim that and design a new life and business for herself that perfectly fits her unique set of skills and experience. I have no doubt she'll be super successful on her own. If you have something to add to the conversation, please leave a comment on my Facebook page, First Class Life Solutions. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. Follow the show to be notified of upcoming episodes and please share it with your friends. What's your story? If you'd like to share it on this podcast to inspire others, please click on the link at the bottom of the show page and fill out the survey. If it seems like a good fit, I'll be in touch. This week's quote is from the brilliant entertainer, Tina Turner. I believe if you just stand up and go, life will open up for you. So true, Tina, so true. I hope you'll join me next week for another inspiring episode. Until then, cheers to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to Change, Redefining Success. EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com.